Taylor, how long have you been thinking about this idea of a four-day work week? Oh, man. I mean, I guess I've been, just from a personal perspective, watching this unfold with great enthusiasm from a distance throughout the pandemic, like everybody. I think it's a really interesting idea, but I'm definitely excited to have a chance to look at it closer because it really seems like the tide is starting to turn. That's Taylor Telford, who covers corporate culture at The Post. And I wanted to talk to Taylor today because, well, it's Monday. And like a lot of people, I really feel like I could have used another day this weekend to do all the errands and cleaning and shopping that I needed to get done, and also to just have time to unplug and feel ready to work again. Taylor says that the idea of a four-day work week used to be on the fringes, but now it's becoming much more commonplace. I would say broadly, just the pandemic has disrupted so many long-held beliefs about the way that work has to be done. And the idea of a four-day work week is so tied into a lot of the debates that are raging right now about work-life balance and productivity and bringing your whole self to work. It really seems to be, for a lot of people, a really exciting alternative to the kind of nine-to-five, which is widely accepted to be pretty dead, at least in the, the way that it's existed for like decades and decades leading up to this. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Monday, February 27th. Today, I talk with Taylor about why we even work five days a week to begin with, how some companies are moving away from that, and whether four-day work weeks can actually become the norm. Plus, later in the show, we'll take a look at another fight over work-life balance. In some parts of the world, workers have won the right to disconnect, meaning it's illegal for bosses to email employees when they're off the clock. But first, Taylor and I, who are very much on the clock today, discuss work weeks. Taylor, the way we work, it obviously does differ from every country to every country. It's not like universal how everyone works. So in the United States, can you tell me about how the concept of the five-day work week began? It hasn't been around for as long as maybe people think it has. Uh, basically, around the Industrial Revolution, it was really common for people to work six days a week. And Oh, when, you're saying it was worse. <laughs> oh, yeah. Things are actually better now than they used to be. But yeah, uh, in the 19th century, like around the Industrial Revolution, when the U.S. government first started tracking worker hours in 1890, the average manufacturing worker was clogging in for 100 hours a week, which... Sounds so insane. And so the five-day week as we know it right now actually gained popularity around the kind of early 20th century, in part due to Henry Ford, the CEO of the Ford Motor Company in the mid-20s. And he came by this idea because he thought that it was essentially the best route to extreme productivity, that it would allow factories to run around the clock, but it would also leave workers with leisure time and more money to spend in their downtime to buy more cars. So it, like, helped his bottom line. Exactly. And then it was actually codified into law as part of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal in 1938. So at this point, we're approaching 100 years of the five-day work week being the norm. Okay, so fast forward. Now, five-day work weeks have been the norm for a long time. But then the pandemic came, and that had a profound impact on how people worked. 
Taylor, what has your reporting shown about the ways in which the pandemic's impact sort of rippled out and and changed our relationship to work? Well, for one thing, the pandemic really laid bare the kind of inequalities in how work is done for people, right? Because there were plenty of people, whether it was people working in hospitals or retail, who had to keep showing up and doing things the way that they've been doing it. But for a lot of people, for knowledge workers in particular, it did represent this huge reckoning over the way that work is done. And so at first, actually, for people who kind of had this overnight shift to working from home, there was this huge boom in productivity because essentially people were stuck at home with nothing else to do. But Mm -hmm. the longer that that went on and that became the norm, people really had issues with the kind of like lack of boundaries between work and home. It's really hard to get away from your job when you're working on your bed all the time. There's not like a physical boundary anymore. Exactly, yeah. And so overall... This commonly understood conception at this point that we're never going back, that the nine to five, as it existed for a lot of people for a long time, is just not going to be part of the way things are done anymore. But it's really introduced a lot of challenges in terms of companies trying to figure out what hybrid work should look like in a post-pandemic environment where it's, there's, as everyone likes to say, there's no one size fits all. Every industry is different. Every company is different. But in terms of what employees are saying, the demands are so clear that people really want to have jobs where they feel like they have control over how their work is done and how it fits into their lives instead of wrapping their lives around work. Yeah, that's like such a huge cultural shift in this country where, you know, where people lived and everything was sort of centered around work um, and a physical location. I'm wondering, did the pandemic cause any companies to try a new approach when it came to how many days employees were expected to work every week? I think that a lot of companies saw this as an opportunity to really experiment with how things are done because essentially they were already being forced to do that anyway as they changed their working norms to adjust for the realities of the pandemic, whether it was social distancing or working from home. But in particular, it has really given a lot of steam to this four-day work week movement. But it's really concentrated among companies that basically are willing and able to experiment with it. So there's this advocacy group called Four Day Week Global that has been working with researchers at Boston College and the University of Cambridge to put on these big pilots in the U.S., in the U.K., to see, you know, the the viability of the Four Day Week. And so actually companies in the U.K. just wrapped up what is so far the world's largest trial of the Four Day Work Week. Uh, It had 61 companies and 3,000 employees that trialed it for six months. And so companies had to shorten work weeks to an average of 32 hours a week while still making sure that employees received 100% of the pay for that period. So yeah, it's not as if they were working 10-hour days in four days a week. It was really they were working fewer hours. Um, what What were some of the results? How did this play out for the companies? And what about the employees? What did they report? 
the big ticket here is that people generally loved it. Uh, employees especially felt like they saw huge benefits to both their work and their personal lives. They slept better. They felt like they had improved mental health. They felt like they were able to be more present as parents and caregivers. And they felt like they had a lot better work-life balance. And also burnout, which has been a huge problem as the pandemic has receded. They really felt like they were more energized and had more to give to their jobs. But the key thing is that companies really benefited too here. The majority of them saw their productivity and revenues really get a boost. And they also had a better engagement and less turnover for employees, which has been a huge problem in the past few months, especially. There's been a lot of churn in the labor market and a lot of disengagement. So it seems like the four-day week could be something that makes people feel more connected to their organizations. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about... Um, what the outcome of that trial was. Like, are there any companies that said that they're going to stick with this approach from here on out? And what did some of the workers who were participants in the trial have to say about the experience? The vast majority of companies that have participated in these trials have decided not to go back. Either they've continued to experiment with it while not locking in, or they've just said, oh yeah, this is the way of the future. We're all in on this. And in terms of the most recent trial, that really big one, 15% uh, of employees said that no amount of money would convince them to go back to working five days a week, which is pretty emphatic. Yeah, and I mean, that's pretty that's pretty remarkable and stands out to me because I think that underscores, although 15% isn't a majority, it does underscore that there is a not insignificant percentage of workers who don't value money as the most important thing in their lives and the decisions they're making around work. Like, it's their priorities have almost shifted. Yeah, that's actually one of the biggest things that has shown up in the labor market in like the past year or so. And it's especially clear for like Gen Z and like younger millennials in particular. Basically, older generations historically, it's been about salary as the main kind of attractor to the job. But there's been a super marked difference in employees that are younger saying that they care a lot more about flexibility than they do about pay. And we've even seen that in 2022. 45 million workers left their jobs, which was like a crazy record. It was like four, more than 4 million people every month. And the majority of them quickly found new jobs, but they were leaving because they were looking for increased flexibility, even being willing to take a pay cut if it means that they have a job that fits into their lives in a way that's more manageable for them. So Taylor, what are the downsides to going to a four-day work week if especially the companies that have tried this have seen that it's worked pretty well, both for them and their employees. Like, what, what are the roadblocks here? Are, are there any downsides? So it depends on who you ask. But <laughs> Doesn't it always? <laughs> generally, it seems like some people are of the mindset that even though the way that it worked in these trials was that companies had to actually shorten the week, some people feel like it will just result in cramming more work into a shorter amount of time and leave employees feeling more overloaded and also leaving companies with less time to service their clients, less time to meet the needs of their business, essentially. But, oh, and could that have like a broader economic impact? 
Definitely, yeah. There are a lot of concerns about the possibility of reduced productivity and higher labor costs for less labor being made. So there's a lot of kind of economic arguments that have yet to be settled with it. But there's also stuff that could just be easily readapted in ways that maybe seemed unthinkable before the pandemic. But now that we're already seeing a revolution in how work is done, seem really feasible. Like companies could just reevaluate the the distribution of meetings, for example, making more time for employees to do the kind of head-down work that's done. But there also is just the kind of cultural expectation here. Like we've seen uh, a lot of the companies that have been willing to explore this are the ones that they're smaller. They have, you know, a workforce that they're able to kind of toy around with a little bit more and they're able to be flexible on how their work is done. But it seems like the big barrier, in a sense, is just kind of the cultural mindset mm. of this is how work is done and big companies saying, you know, this is how it has to be. Yeah. And then obviously, as we've mentioned before, when it came to the pandemic starting and the way that played out for different types of workers, I would imagine the same dynamic exists here. Like there must be some workers, like I'm thinking teachers, you know, like nurses, where the idea of maybe a four-day work week is just not in their realm of possibility. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that just like hybrid or flexible work, it's not something that is accessible to everybody. Like retail workers have to show up and work in person and teachers have to teach kids five days a week. And so there's also the question of like big staffing shortages where they they need to get the most out of the workers that they can in a lot of these fields where they're really struggling, like education and healthcare. And mm-hmm. so it seems like there are certain industries that would be able to adapt to this a lot more easily. Like I said, it seems like broadly tech is the area right now where companies are most willfully exploring this. But at the same time, it seems possible that other industries would be able to kind of follow suit and adapt those things. But it's certainly another, maybe another source of inequality in the labor market, frankly, where the four-day work week could become something that is a differentiator for companies that are trying to attract talent and trying to get the best people. But it's not something that everybody's going to be able to offer or be able to access. Taylor, where does the policy conversation around a four-day work week stand. Are there any lawmakers who are talking about this? Has it reached that level? So yeah, actually, there is a lot of interest in this at the moment. So there are some local efforts, like Maryland is currently considering a bill that would give companies tax credits for experimenting with this. Uh, And then in 2021, uh, people in the House of Representatives introduced a bill that would change the standard work week from 40 to 32 hours and then mandate overtime pay for any work that goes beyond that. So it seems like there's probably a long way to go before that becomes a widely accepted idea. But certainly there are lots of corners of the legislative sphere where people are really looking seriously at it and trying to figure out how can we incentivize companies to explore this further. Well, Taylor, I have to ask, As someone really tracking corporate culture, worker culture so closely, if you had to, if you had to wager, how feasible is this? Is still is this still a pie in the sky uh, concept? Honestly, I think it's super feasible for certain companies. What's clear at this point is that like we touched on earlier, there are certain industries where it's just not going to be possible, where people need care or work around the clock, whether it's education or healthcare. But there are certainly, there's certainly a lot of momentum in terms of 
other companies, especially in jobs like tech or finance or professional services, where there's so much room and desire for experimentation on how work is done. And so what is for sure true at this point is that we are swimming in signs that workers are feeling like work as it's been conceived of for decades isn't working for them anymore. And so there's a lot of momentum on this side of change, of reconfiguring what that might look like. But I think it's going to take a while to shake itself out. Well, Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Taylor Telford covers corporate culture for The Post. After the break, Post reporter Niha Masi talks to my colleague Kim Bellware about another idea. It's one that could impact workers' lives when they're off the clock, and it's called the right to disconnect. We'll be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. The right to disconnect may seem like a wild dream, but this is already a reality for workers in France, Portugal, and Italy. And in Kenya, a bill is being considered in parliament that would do something similar there. Here's Niha to explain. Right to disconnect is a movement that I would say essentially seeks to strike a work-life balance in the digital age. So with right to disconnect, employees essentially have the right to disengage from work, after working hours, uh, whatever they may be, and not check or respond to work emails or calls or be expected to finish uh, pending work. This could be on a holiday, after working hours, when they're sitting down to dinner, or they are on vacation. And if colleagues or bosses reach out in that time, there is no expectation of a response or expected retribution for not responding. So why do advocates say a right to disconnect is important for employees? I mean, what are the issues that are coming up when they talk about a bad work-life balance? I think it's a very pertinent and universal issue uh, in our hyper-connected online lives where our phones are constantly beeping, whether it's calls or Outlook emails or the dreaded Slack pings or social media notifications. Um, so replying to that one work email at 9 p.m. might not take too long, but it essentially means that we are still um, wired to work when we should be resting. And having to do that day in and day out or frequently is something that could be a factor leading to people feeling burnout. So Niha, is this bill generally popular in Kenya and does it have broad political support? Yeah, so a lawmaker from the ruling party has introduced it. So he feels pretty confident of ensuring that the bill uh, will pass eventually. I spoke to him and he said that he brought uh, he brought up this proposal because he realized how much longer the workers were working during pandemic, far beyond the mandated maximum 52 hours in a week. And so he wondered how to address this problem to ensure well-being for employees and ensure that they also have family time. Hmm. 
So this idea of this right to disconnect does predate the COVID pandemic. I know that France passed similar legislation a few years ago. Can you talk about what happened there? Yeah, so France introduced this legislation far back in 2016, and it became a law in 2017. Uh, so it was sort of the pioneer in this field. But France has been known to have um, excellent employee protection measures, including a 35-hour work week, among others. Uh, so when they brought it into law, one of the Socialist Party legislatures who told the BBC at that time that the workers, even after leaving offices, continued to be chained like dogs on an electronic leash. And that was sort of their motivation to bring such uh, a law. That was about six years ago. Has that law been successful in France? And is it still popular? It's hard to um, comment on the popularity uh, without like extensive like studies or surveys. But one of the people I interviewed in my piece, who's a restaurant manager in France, said uh, she actually only began to follow it recently. And it happened over the Christmas break when she was off for two days. And she said she received a work message and it just made her realize that this was not sustainable. And so she told her employees that from Monday to Friday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., I will be all yours. But after that, please leave me alone. And uh, she does have two exceptions, I must uh, admit, uh, a health emergency or if the restaurant's on fire. So I understand a pretty common counter to these laws is that they're not really that enforceable. So how effective are these laws in practice? It, It sounds like this is still somewhat optional for managers or employers. How well are these laws enforced? Implementation of um, such laws is definitely complicated to enforce, and a lot of it works on, um, you know, uh, the employers being voluntarily um, instituting uh, policies uh, of how they would work within companies. Um, I think the other way that these often get enforced is when employees bring this up as a right uh, to their employers. So it's very hard for like government agencies to monitor uh, every company or every employer in their country uh, on 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 following these rules. But it's um, it's something that can often lead from self enforcement essentially. And since then, a number of other countries have passed similar right to disconnect protections. How broadly is this concept now spreading around the globe? And I'm wondering how those laws differ from the one that's being proposed in Kenya. Yeah, so a lot of uh, European countries uh, followed France um, in passing similar laws. So we have uh, Italy, Belgium, Spain, Ireland, who've all uh, brought in um, right to disconnect um, rights uh, in law. And they're all different um, from either the people they apply to or in terms of penalties. So for instance, in Belgium, the right is afforded to government workers, uh, while in Portugal, it applies to companies who have at least 10 employees. Um, In Kenya, the proposal will include a hefty fine or even imprisonment if employers violate it. And it also ensures that workers get paid extra for any work they do after uh, their working hours. I have to believe that this is a policy that's quite popular among workers. But what is the argument against the policy? Is this usually a debate between labor unions and employers? 
Yeah, so the argument against it, uh, especially coming from employers, is that there are existing employment laws that each country has, which regulate working hours and compensation, and to add an additional layer will complicate those. They also have, in countries like Canada, suggested that companies can uh, voluntarily decide to uh, implement something like this instead of having it codified by law. Employers also say that with remote working or hybrid working, which is now increasingly the norm, it would also impose administrative burdens on them. And some uh, experts also say that this is sort of grounded in the myth that making a comfortable work-life balance will ultimately make employees lazy. And so employers are hesitant to sort of support it. Well, there has not, to my knowledge, been a similar push in the United States. Why do you think we don't see this type of legislation in the U.S.? Yeah, I asked this question to some of the experts who study um, labor rights issues, and they said that the difference from Europe and uh, United States on this is how labor issues get treated in the U.S. So it's not so much a cultural issue, but political issue. And given the growing political polarization in the country, it doesn't become a talking point. And um, as I mentioned, uh, some of the myths around sustaining labor protection, like workers will get lazy, uh, is not something that is borne out by research. And research actually shows that if workers are healthy and not stressed, they will be much more protective. There has also been a historical distaste in the U.S. for employment regulations, particularly federal regulations, because freedom is defined as freedom from interference by the state. Uh, this is also something that the experts sort of brought up as a reason why it doesn't have mainstream traction in the U.S. Kenya will be the first African country to have such a law if it does get passed. But even, even otherwise, to have this issue come up, as a topic of discussion in national and international press uh, creates awareness about it and makes people demand uh, certain rights as we now confront a new working reality, shifting from remote to hybrid work or to go back to office. How is our office life changing? Pandemic fundamentally changed our working lives and it continues to be in a churn. So these debates are important in addressing concerns that the workers face. Neha, thank you so much. This was great. Thank you for having me. Neha Masi is a reporter for The Post. She spoke with my colleague, Kim Bellware. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Ariel Plotnik, Lucas Trevor, and Eliza Dennis. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins and Maggie Pemmon. Thanks also to Savvy Robinson. If you want to show your support for the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to support the work that we here at Post Reports do. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. 
That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.